0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: In an era of rampant Islamophobia, literary representations of Muslims and anti-Muslim bigotry tell us a lot about changing concepts of cultural difference. In Islamophobia and the novel, published by Columbia University Press in 2018, Peter Morey analyzes how recent works of fiction have framed and responded to the rise of anti-Muslim prejudice, showing how their portrayals of Muslims both reflect and refute the ideological preoccupations of media and politicians in the post-911 West. Mori discusses novels embodying a range of positions, from the avowedly secular to the religious, and from texts that appear to underwrite Western assumptions of cultural superiority to those that recognize and critique neo-imperial impulses. Contemporary literature's capacity to unveil the conflicted nature of anti-Muslim bigotry expands our range of resources to combat Islamophobia. This, in turn, might contribute to Islamophobia's eventual dismantling. In our conversation, we discussed anti-Muslim prejudice, the tension between narrative and power, literature and its relationship to Islamophobia, the market for the Muslim, stereotyping, authenticity and the burden of representation, aesthetic expectations, economic constraints, multiculturalism, securitization, the effects of 9-11, the global novel, and critical Muslim literary studies. I'm one of your hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. And now here's my conversation with Peter Mori about
0: Islamophobia
1: and the novel. Welcome, Peter. Thanks for joining me on New Books in Islamic Studies. How are you?
0: I'm good, thank you. How are you?
1: i'm I'm great. I'm excited to talk about your your really wonderful book Islamophobia in the novel. Uh, this uh, book I, I think a lot of people will uh, be interested in uh, both people that are interested in, in literature, of course, but uh, if they're interested in kind of the broader politics uh, of our current moment, um, it's certainly uh, helpful to to help us think through that. so uh, overall you kind of provide literary or look at literary responses to uh, the social and political conditions of anti-Muslim prejudice and policies. Um, I wonder if you could start us off a little bit about uh, your journey to this project. So, um, what what's kind of your background and training? Uh, were there there moments or mentors that uh, helped you get to the study of uh, Muslim cultural production, um, Islamophobia, these types of topics?
0: Yeah, thank you. Um- I suppose there are two ways in to the, to the topic, two ways to answer that question. Um, uh, uh, and both of them converge at a certain point. When I was a, a student, uh, particularly a postgraduate student at University of Sussex, um, I, I started to focus in on colonial fiction in actual fact, fictions about India written by writers from the colonial era, so Rudyard Kipling and Forster and people like that. Uh, and brought that in my study, in my PhD, up to the present day. And in the process of that, I started to get into post-colonial literature. And I realised that the common denominator, really, in this interest I had was literature that talks about scenarios where there's some big power imbalance going on. Uh, And obviously, colonialism is a prime example of that. Uh, And so from there, I kind of moved really into post colonial studies more broadly, still with that same understanding, uh, looking initially at um, India in actual fact. My, my early books were all about India and the Indian diaspora uh, writing. Um, and then, of course, nine eleven happened and you had that big conflagration, and uh, you also had Islamophobia taking a, a gear change there, you know, going up through the gears, as it were. And it seemed to me that that was the most. Uh, pressing and continues in a way to be one of the most pressing uh, imbalances of power that there are, and so, as a literature person as a as a student of literature and a graduate in literature and now a teacher of literature, I thought, well, what role does literature and culture play in these things you know how does How does something kind of seemingly innocuous as a novel um, relate to an atmosphere of Islamophobia the cultural values the various things that are uh, claimed about about one side or another in this this supposed clash of civilizations as it was sometimes called so it was a kind of journey really the common the common theme of which was was narrative and power so that's one part of the story the other part of the story I suppose is that I I met my partner uh, who was Muslim a Muslim woman and uh, we got married and we had kids and so it was also all about trying to work out how we as a, as a family unit and and my extended family now in Pakistan as well, how we all fit into this narrative, because it had a very significant effect, of course, on our ability to travel internationally, as it did with everyone, you know, but the security measures and things that came in after that had a particular uh, impact. So I think the the personal and the professional, if you like, came together in converging on this, this question of Islamophobia. And it's really been the the main subject matter of my research probably for about 15 years or maybe more now.
1: Hmm. Um, yeah. And this project uh, specifically uh, relates to some of your, your, your past work um, in key ways. Um, you, you start this book with uh, some sophisticated thinking about the ideas of, of framing. Um, and this um, if people don't know, you have this very well-known uh, book framing Muslims, um which uh helps us account for um in this literary context uh what what you say are, are text context and, and paratext. Um so can you can you set us up with this idea of of framing? What what do you see as the existent dominant framing uh for the literature that you're looking
0: at? Yeah, you're right. Um I think that This book follows on, in a sense, from Framing Muslims, which was the book that I co-authored with Amina Yaqeen. And there we were looking at the frame in terms of the converging discourses, if you like, you know, the ways of seeing that that unite and have united politics and culture, the media and so on, since 9-11, in the way they talk about Muslims. And so the frame, in a sense, becomes that set of issues that are, deemed salient around the question of Muslims and Islam, particularly in the West um, and in the global war on terror. Um, and so when you come to literature, uh, you've got another level of that, really, because literature itself obviously frames the world. Novels frame the world in a particular way, in an imaginative way. But if they're at all realist, they will engage with scenarios which are recognisable and which, again, are imbued with with power. So the way that framing works really uh, in, in terms of literature and Islamophobia in this particular book is that you have the, the framing act of writing the literary narrative, outside of which you have, in a sense, another frame, which is that topical frame, if you like. You know What's going on in the world, what's going on in the politics, which which tends to influence the subject matter of the novels, for example – and then beyond that, again, you have a kind of macro-paratextual, if you like, framing structure, which is also to do with the modes of dissemination, production, publication. You know, what novels get published? What gets reviewed? You know, how is it reviewed? What what kind of slots are reviewers and readers fitting this into? What, what previous knowledge are they bringing to bear in the way they interpret this stuff? So... There are various kind of levels of framing, but I would say it's it's that container, if you like, that that, that holds together the kinds of things that one can say about Muslims in uh, in contemporary society.
1: Yeah, and you you put this uh, you know kind of related uh, term uh, or phrase, this uh, market for the Muslim, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is real useful from the book. Um, and this, if, I, if I'm reading correctly, uh, is kind of establishes aesthetic and economic criteria for, for success um, in thinking about Muslim and cultural production and the, and the novel specifically. Um, wh- what do you mean by this phrase, the market for the Muslim, and what, what are the types of demands it makes on on writers and publishers and all that?
0: You, you put it very well there, I think, when you say the aesthetic and commercial market for the Muslim. It is, it is, you're right, it's the convergence of those those two things. Um, if you go back, for example, to the, the early years after 9-11, to some extent still today, but particularly then, there was a great urgency to find out more about Islamic cultures across the world, really. Um, and so along with books about politics or anthropology or those kinds of things... Literary fiction also kind of comes in to feed that market. Uh, So a certain kind of writing, which I talk about in the the Muslim Misery Memoir chapter of the book, actually, uh, in a sense fills that that gap in the market. It provides information, uh, supposedly authentic, about Muslims and Islam. Um, But it does so in such a way, then, really, as to be recognisable within that broader discursive frame you know what are the problems we know here well the problems are to do with uh you know women's rights or radicalization or you know there's a certain list of, of things that will always be there and particularly if you look at the the books from that early decade or so after nine eleven, 11 the ones that that you can probably remember the ones that were really uh big literary hits but also the the kind of bestseller market you know the kind of um pop fiction ones really they all in a sense are answering that question or engaging with that question in some way and so i think one of the things i i gestured towards in the in the book and it's an ongoing story um you know is the fact that as time goes on um writers muslim background writers for example can't become more in a sense wise to that uh, that frame and, and in a sense try and possibly subvert it from inside find ways in other words to to change the agenda which is a very difficult thing to do because the agenda frames the conversation.
1: Yeah. And, uh, one of the, the kind of threads through the, through the book and through, through much of the the work you study, um, and it's kind of inherent in what you were just talking about, um, is this idea of the kind of fetishization of authenticity. Um, so, uh, can, can you talk about why, uh, novels which are fiction uh, are so often understood as kind of ethnographic accounts in a way um, and, and how does the market definition of authenticity shape uh, literary production
0: there's a good quote which I think I, I use in the book from Sarah Brouette's work uh, and she, one of the things she says is that uh, the moment something is declared by somebody to be authentic it's become mediated <laughs> you know, and to that extent, you know, it's not authentic anymore. Um, and really, it is about that. In a sense, it's about custodianship or gatekeeping, in a way. Because if you think about that scenario I was describing, you know, the publishing world in the years perhaps since nine eleven, and that particular interest, that that itch, if you like, that that they want to scratch about, you know, why do Muslims do this? You know, why does it behave like that? Um, or why do they behave like that? I think that, in in a sense, that's the that's the answer to the question the anthropological and the ethnographic comes from a place where muslim cultures practices beliefs are other you know they're different uh, the norm if you like within the the publishing world and particularly the, the books that i talk about in the in the uh, in, in Islamophobia in the novel you know are all and They've all gone through a particular process of um, being discovered, as it were, being edited, being adjusted. There's, there's been a process going on. They're marketed with certain kinds of cover. Um, and so they're all, in a sense, adjusted and, and moved towards uh, an interpretation that the reader can, is invited, I should say, to, to bring to bear, which is that I'm going to learn more about Muslims from this. So they, a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them assume a non-Muslim reader uh, and they may, for example, and many of them do this, they may explain what Eid is, for example, or particular cultural practices, you know, for a reader who is presumed not to be from uh, an Islamic cultural background. Um, and so that's really the reason it, it it kind of dovetails. I think fiction begins to dovetail with that anthropological desire to know more about this other community and and i suppose one of the concerns that the book has is well what gets lost or distorted in that in that process you know in that gatekeeping or that agenda setting that that writers are required to respond to and you know how do they then try and find a way out of that impasse? Mm. Uh,
1: another theme that comes up a lot across the book um which again, you you kind of already pointed to a little bit is this this burden of representation for uh, writers of Muslim background, um, and several of the authors you you look at, uh, some some of them kind of uh, utilize the kind of dominant understandings of Islam, but but many of them push back and say you know want to give alternative perspectives of what what a, being a Muslim is. Um, c- can you talk a little bit about what what is this? this burden entail uh and and how does it shape fiction uh maybe especially for those who who want to kind of uh tell alternative narratives about being muslim
0: yeah the burden of representation in a sense emerges out of minority art practice and the context that it happens in Um, so classically uh in the in the for the example with the example of britain for instance Kabina um, Mercer famously, talking about black British filmmaking in the 1980s, coined this phrase burden of representation um, to talk about the way that the small number of black British films that were coming out at that, at that period were, in a sense, weighed down or were, were overburdened with this idea that they, quote unquote, represented the black community. And, you know, so in other words, you move away from the idea of the director's vision or the author's vision. And, and the whole kind of thing becomes about something else. It becomes about speaking for uh, a community. Um, so there's an interesting thing. and It dovetails with your previous question about the authentic here. Um, because on the one hand, uh, and this is very noticeable, I think, in the literature that I talk about in the book, there's that desire to correct uh, and to, you know, to point out the diversity of, muslim um life for example given that it's homogenized within an islamophobic way of looking at things there's a desire to kind of emphasize and show how that's very diverse um but at the same time as soon as you do that you're starting to be involved in this representing the community kind of thing that's one of the reasons why in the book i don't make a hard and fast distinction between writing Uh, by non-Muslims, about Muslims, and what I call Muslim background writing. I call it Muslim background because some writers would identify as Muslim, others would be more wary of that or might say, well, I grew up in a Muslim household, but I'm not practicing. So I try and kind of encapsulate those things. But I I, I don't draw a distinction between the two on the basis of some greater authenticity, simply because what I wanted to kind of keep an eye on was that overarching framework in which they both work. And so the way that, that might manifest itself, for example, is if a writer reproduces a particular Islamophobic view of the world. I mean, I'll give you an example from the book, which is uh, only mentioned briefly, but Martin Amos's short story, The Last Days of Muhammad Atta, um, which is interesting. Uh, is quite flawed, I think, what most people would say. Um, but the view that it gives of, of Muhammad Atta is a view that it is, in a sense, one can extrapolate other Muslim Practices and ideas from that. I don't want to go into a whole reading of it now, but you know the idea that Muslims are violent, that they're somehow sexually repressed, which is always another big thing, right? Um, and so then, of course, writers after that take uh, umbrage at that and take offence at that and try and, and then, in a sense, there's a there's a, an attempt to create a more diverse view of what Islam uh, and Muslims are about. So there's always a tension between trying to reposition oneself and reposition the narrative. And the fact that whatever you say in a sense as a Muslim background writer is somebody you know a reviewer or a reader or a critic is very likely to try and pull that back to this established body of knowledge uh, about Muslims so the burden of representation is always there in the background as well and and it's how writers try and escape from that, that is one of the things that interests me in the book
1: now um, I, I'm kind of realizing that we, we've we've been talking uh, both with the assumption of what Islamophobia is, but of, of course in the book you, you kind of spell this out. Um, and uh, it, it gets nuanced in, in very uh, dynamic ways as you go through the authors. Um, but per, perhaps the first chapter, um, which focuses on an older generation of, of white, male, British, and American authors, um, th- this is, they're, they're probably most exemplary of, of what people usually think of when they think of Islamophobia. Um, so can you talk a little bit about these authors positions, um, in regards to Islam and its relationship to, to Western secular modernity? Uh, what, what do they prescribe for the modern Muslim in their, in their novels?
0: Yeah, I think I'll preface that, the answer, by also saying that you, you've brought me round to one of the crucial points of the book, which is to finesse a little bit further the idea of the relationship of the aesthetic to the political. Mm. Um, because quite often, and in fact, one of the tenets that the writers I talk about in chapter one, particularly uh, Martin Amos and Ian McEwen, would hold to be true is that the aesthetic somehow stands slightly to one side of the political, or can stand to one side of the political and reflect things in a way that is not kind of weighed down by ideology. Uh, I don't think that's true, Uh, and I think Chapter One, in a way, which is called Islam, Culture and Anarchy, tries to put those two writers, plus John Updike from the American end of things, um, within within a kind of understanding, as it were, within within a context of interpretation, um, where the idea of Islam and culture uh, is really fitted in by those writers to a much longer view of what Western literature is about. So to be a bit more specific, um, particularly Martin Amos in his volume of essays, The Second Plane, um, has a very uh, canonical view in a sense of literature. You know, that great literature uh exists first of all it it exists independently of the cultural lens through which its greatness is decided you know there is such a thing um and it exists outside of politics Uh, and one of his concerns is that the attempt by politics to infiltrate this and kind of you know sully this this type of thing but if you if you look at a thread that runs through those uh those writers it is a kind of liberal uh view of the world it's a liberal liberal humanist view in a sense uh, which is always taken to be at the back of the development of the novel. It's always there in, as a kind of under, way of understanding what the novel does. It, it articulates the liberal game, view of the world. Um, and those things get reanimated post 9-11 in particularly, I would say, McEwen and Amos. And the way that comes through is uh, with Amos, he, he talks about F.R. Leavis, you know, the great tradition and that whole idea uh, and how, you um, There is a kind of canon of literature, and what you get today, he moves very interestingly to kind of political correctness and say, well, this is a kind of watering down of what culture really is. Uh, McEwen in Saturday goes right back to that great Victorian liberal poet, um, Matthew Arnold, and his poem Dover Beach, and seriously, as far as I can understand, proposes this as a kind of remedy for all sorts of social ills which come to symbolise the invasion of the alien. Uh, into this kind of middle-class Western scenario. So it's slightly more oblique there. Um, John Updike, similarly, I think, and the interesting thing about uh, Terrorists, which is the book I talk about there, is that there's not a lot of difference between the social diagnosis that's offered by the two protagonists, even though one is an elderly uh, Jewish guy and the other one is a young, radicalised Muslim. The their interpretation of what's wrong with America converges on this idea of social uh, decline. And so in a way, what I think those three writers are doing, and one of the reasons why I put them together, is that they are suggesting that the appeasement, if you like, of Islam or the toleration of of things within multiculturalism has led to some kind of attenuation of Western culture. Uh, And so I connect that to things like Paul Berman's terror and liberalism and particular ways of understanding the West is sealed off from this other culture, which through the processes of decolonization, migration, and so on, has, has made its way into the center. And what are we going to do? You know, 9-11 has blown up, and this is the result of uh, multicultural appeasement, as, as one of them calls it. So um, that's really what it's about. It's about that, that chapter is about the way that the idea of culture can be, in a sense, weaponized uh, in this war on terror.
1: Um, you you move from from them to uh, authors of, of Muslim background that uh, they they might not uh, strap on that identity so clearly, um, but also dealing with issues of, of multiculturalism. Um, you look at Hanif Quraishi and Monica Ali. Um, can can you tell us about the the novels of theirs that you you look at um, and how these writers um, negotiate pressures of of growing multiculturalism and, and notions of individuality um, it, along with the expectations of authenticity from, from those authors.
0: Yeah, that's a good, you've wrapped a lot of things up there in, in a good kind of tight question because that's precisely in chapter two, the thing I was trying to explore, which is uh, on the one hand, both those writers, Monica Ali, who's Brick Lane, I look at, and Hanif Qureshi, whose Black Album is, is my focus there have both been taken, for better or worse, as representative figures for minority communities um, at, one, at one point or another in their career. They both repudiated that, but nevertheless they've been read in that way, partly, again, because of this burden of, of representation. Um, but what you tend to find in both the Black Album and more particularly, I think, in Brick Lane is a kind of individualism which moves away from the collective solidarities that you might associate more readily with multiculturalism. Um, so, for example, in Haif Qureshi's The Black Album, the dilemma that the central character Shaheed has is whether to go along with his kind of hedonistic instincts with, and, and how he's having this affair with his, his tutor. And does he run off with her or does he become more involved in this uh, quite um, conservative religious group at his um, local college where he studies? Um, and it's a very binary novel, as that summary uh, would indicate. Um, and Shahid vacillates for a bit between those two things and some interesting discussions happen. But in the end, you know he's always going to take the path of individualism uh, and go off with his girlfriend, which he does at the end. In In Brick Lane, it's slightly different because there you have the focus on a Bangladeshi woman who's come from Bangladesh to uh, the east end of London to live Uh in almost stereotypically constrained circumstances, circumstances of economic comparative poverty uh, in a very patriarchal household where her husband makes her do all the menial tasks. And and obviously she becomes very frustrated with this, and there's no real uh, solidarity there until a certain point in the book happens when 9-11 occurs and then a group gets together to kind of defend Muslims, as it were, and and things uh, start spiralling away from there. But uh, the central protagonist in that case, Nazneen, doesn't, doesn't uh, choose to, to follow that route. Instead, what she does is, um, once she's kind of free of her husband, uh, she sets up a little business with her, uh, another of, of the um, Bangladeshi Muslim women. Now, um, yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. That sounds like kind of very laudable uh, you know, energy and, and kind of agency. But within the context of the imagery of the book and the moment that it describes from the 80s through to the early 2000s, it is that moment of neoliberal economics in a way where reliance on the state, the relationship to state provision becomes attenuated. You think about the policies of Margaret Thatcher or Ronald Reagan. Um, And so individualism becomes loaded with a particular economic and ideological baggage and so the way the book ends, I think, or the way I argue the book ends is that um, the the lesson, if you like, for the protagonist is to not to go down the route of multicultural solidarity, um, but instead to branch off on her own, to try and make a bit of money, to become a kind of neoliberal uh, actor, as it were, you know, a neoliberal subject. Um all of that's working against the idea that multiculturalism is a kind of collective operation. And so I put multiculturalism, there courtesy of Will Kim Laker and a few other theorists, in dialogue with that other tension that's kind of pulling people towards individualism in that 20 to 30-year period uh, that the book's set in. Hmm. Um, you
1: you mentioned uh, this, this uh, phrase, which is... Uh, right on but also kind of sad and funny at the same time The the muslim misery memoir um what what, what do you mean by this what what is the muslim misery memoir um and the the examples that you use can can you tell us why they were so successful you think
0: yeah the muslim misery memoir is kind of my coinage really it's uh you can also see these books called things like neo-Orientalist and, and and various other terms that are used around them. The common characteristic really is, uh, and this, these these actually, to be specific, are very much a post-9-11 phenomena. You know, Hanif Qureshi, who we mentioned earlier, is writing Black Album in the mid-90s. That's a very much a post-fatwa, uh, post-Satanic Verses book. These books, the Muslim Misery Memoirs, are are post-9-11 books very specifically uh, because they describe characters who's who are burdened in very direct oppressive ways by uh regimes at least claiming legitimacy through islam um so the books i look at there are as an uh, reading lolita in tehran um where obviously the villain of the piece as it were is the islamic republic with its thought police and its republican guard and its censorship and its anti-westernism um and the other one is Khalid Husseini's The Kite Runner, which is, I think is not as, a, as overt an example of a book that um, is, is kind of describing the miseries of its protagonists, specifically with reference to Islam being at fault. But nevertheless, it plays out that same idea of the West as a place of freedom um, and the East, in this case, Afghanistan, as a place of corruption, fundamentalism and actually threatening totalitarianism as well. Um, so the misery memoirs i mean the subtitle of that chapter is the truth claims of exotic suffering and one of the things i argue there is that you have these books which appeal obviously post 9 11 to a particular mindset which at that same moment is arguing for western interventions in afghanistan and subsequently iraq and iran is on the radar as it's always on the radar for those things and so nafisi's book for example which is really about the glories of studying English literature, which is really not allowed in the Islamic Republic, um, plays into that idea that the West is the repository of freedom and everything in the book that comes from Iran is oppressive and unpleasant. Um, And so there you see the way that the Muslim misery, Islam is in a sense the thing that's blamed for the oppression of the women in that particular book. In the Kite Runner, uh, it's slightly different because there you have a protagonist who, again, moves to the West, having uh, had to leave his country when the uh, Soviets invade in 1979. Um, but again, the dyad is very, very clear that he goes back to Afghanistan uh, post-Taliban or around about that time, nine eleven. 11 And again, the binary between the West as a place of freedom and plenty to which you have to rescue people. Uh, but that's the common thread as well. Um, in the two books, that either one rescues an individual character and brings them to the West where they can be free, or alternatively, you know, the West has to go in and sort the place out. So those books are very ideological. The Muslim Misery Memoir is the most heavily ideological, I would argue, of the books that I talk about. And the exotic part is similarly uh, double-edged. On the one hand, if you think about the exotic exotic commodities, exotic being in the eye of the beholder. Uh, But if you think about the exotic, um, usually we think of uh, spices or foodstuffs or rugs or, you know, vases or whatever it might be. But there's another kind of exotic, I argue, which is to do with this suffering. It's a kind of almost a fetishization of the misery that's associated with Islam. Uh, And it becomes, there's a kind of frisante. Attached to that, which you get in these books as well, so the books therefore are very much from that early post 9 uh, nine eleven clash of civilizations uh, viewpoint. I think, and it, so in
1: in the book, in your book, you move from the the quote unquote Muslim world, so to speak, to um, <laughs> the the center of freedom in New York City, uh, with books that are are. are Situated in a kind of post 9-11 uh, world. Um, can you tell us how, uh, how how the books that you look at here, uh, what, what do they reveal about American identity um, and the positions of Muslims in, in a time of very heightened Islamophobia?
0: The two books I look at here are Amy Waldman's the submission and H.M. Nakfi's Homeboy. And they're quite different in a way because one uh, takes a kind of overview of a particular controversy, which is to do with the design of a memorial for the 9-11 attacks, essentially, um, uh, but which also actually maps onto the Grand Zero mosque controversy, which was happening around about the same time. People may remember that, you know, when there was a proposal to build um, an Islamic uh, social centre near-ish to uh the you know ground zero the twin towers um and it kind of it doesn't it's not a it's not a sort of piece of factual fiction a a la norman mailer or anything but it but it definitely kind of sums up something about the way that islamophobia operates in fact i would say that the amy wardman book the submission is probably the book that illustrates islamophobia in action as you and i might imagine it to be or as people experience it to be i should say um most directly uh, and so there it's it's a contest between proponents and opponents of the design which turns out to be uh, designed by a muslim architect and when that comes out there's a big furore and you see all those forces come to bear that one associates with islamophobia you see the media pitching in you see bloggers you see radio shock jocks you see politicians You see an opportunity there and they all converge on this issue in this one particular Uh, character. Um, The thing I would say about that book that that interests me as well is that Amy Waldman is quite insightful about the fact that this is a contest over whose knowledge is going to win out, whose truth is going to win out. The Muslim architect is very secular, uh, but his work, precisely because he is Muslim, is read as some coded uh, you know, kind of signal about, you know, the, the ultimate victory of Islam, and therefore it's an insult to the, the dead of 9-11 and so on. So those very hyperbolic claims that are always associated, they come through there. So there's a, there's that, and the knowledge, really, that the question of who owns the knowledge, whose definition is going to win out, is played out very interestingly in that book. H.M. Nukvi's book, um, Homeboy, is very different because it focuses, uh, again, on um, three uh, Pakistani Migrants to America uh, and the effect of 9 11 on them, which is obviously much more kind of direct and concentrated. And it particularly plays out in both books, but more so in this one perhaps, through the spaces that they can and can't enter. When the book starts off, New York is this kind of paradise, really, this multicultural paradise, you know, that welcomes everybody. You have the Statue of Liberty and so on and so forth. But then 9 11 happens and That world shrinks; they become objects of suspicion, and the central protagonist is taken in and interrogated, and has a nervous breakdown. And this is a spoiler alert, but you know, in the end, he he kind of decides to leave and and go back to Pakistan. So, in both books, there's a contest over space. One is the space of the design for a memorial to 9-11, which everybody converges on in this argument, and the second one is is really the shrinking of the space for uh, immigrant the immigrant population, particularly the Muslim population, post 9-11. The, uh, the, the next chapter deals with space uh,
1: in, in kind of different ways. Um, here you look at uh, three um, liberal thrillers by non-Muslim authors, um, and they're dealing with issues of um, securitization and borders, migration, these these types of things. Um how how does Islamophobia inform these novels? How do they deal with these these topics of uh, exclusion and citizenship and and the like?
0: That's a tricky question because with these novels, you're right, they're liberal novels, um, and one of the things that and they're liberal thrillers, actually specifically, uh, and one of the arguments that uh, is made that I take issue slightly with in that chapter is that well, thrillers, especially spy thrillers, uh, espionage thrillers, are Inherently conservative. In a sense, they're inherently nationalistic, because what usually is under threat in the spy thriller or that kind of thing is national security. And there's a contest around knowledge there. So there is an argument that, um, I think David Holloway makes this argument, that um, thrillers are by their nature conservative. But of course, you've got these three writers, John Le Carre, you know, very, very famous, the late John Le Carre, Dan Fesperman, and, and Richard Flanagan, the award winning Australian novelist. Um, in, the, in these particular books, writing thrillers which are contesting and interrogating the control of knowledge within borders and people within borders, and what happens when people cross-borders. So if I was to contrast this chapter with the previous one, there, as you rightly said, the focus is very much on New York, so it's in a sense movements within and around a city. Here it's about international movement, which of course was curtailed in a big way uh, after 9-11. And so here, with the Le Carre uh, book, which is A Most Wanted Man, you have an incidence of uh, a Chechen migrant trying to travel uh, uh, to Germany, um, having been tortured uh, he's got a very complicated background, which I won't go into. Um, but the question that is raised there is, you know, what do we do with these people? You know, do can they lead us? Do we use them to lead us to terrorist masterminds? Do they have any links to terrorism at all? What can we find out about them? Um, and in the other two books, in Fesperman's The Warlord's Son and Flanagan's um, um, The Unknown uh, Terrorist, um, the the two books really are interested in, how people and and situations are framed uh, as a threat. Uh, So when the warlord's son, for example, you get this American journalist who goes to Afghanistan, crossing the border backwards and forwards between Pakistan and Afghanistan, and coming to terms with cultural difference in a way that he's never experienced before. And the warlord's son of the title, who is his guide, as it were, becomes a kind of mediating presence and introducing him to a different way of looking at this other culture. Uh, and in the Flanagan novel, which is set in Australia, you have a different kind of setup again, which is where uh, a uh, an Australian woman who happens to be a a stripper in a nightclub has a one night stand with a, a Muslim guy who then ends up dead, and she has to go on the run because they suspect him of being a terrorist. And there, the in- interest is is provided by, in a sense, the fact that anybody can get caught up in this hysteria, if you like of Islamophobia. So those books are all coming at that question of Muslims from a liberal perspective, but the thing that complicates it and what I argue in the chapter is that they can only do that up to a point because in all three cases, the main protagonist whose journey you as a reader are invited to go on is a white person, is a white non-Muslim person. It's very very clearly the case that uh, really our sympathies are designed to go along with those characters, uh, even where, for example, they're standing in for Muslims. So there's some kind of wariness with the liberal thriller writers about you, you, putting a Muslim character center stage.
1: Yeah. And you
0: um, in, the, in the
1: next chapter you you look at uh, two Pakistani authors, um, and w- uh, I mean, I guess people have picked this up, but all, all the books you're looking at are, are English language books. Um, hmm. So here you're thinking about uh, Muslim authors and uh, kind of the global global novel. Um, so the the books that you look at here, what what do these uh, global novels open up in terms of possibilities of contesting Islamophobia? And then what are what are some of the hazards that uh, arise when when thinking about these uh, works kind of transnationally? I guess. Hmm.
0: Well, I, I suppose, you know, having said that I don't set up a distinction between Muslim and non-Muslim uh, writers, uh, the book in chapters six and seven kind of moves towards writers who would either identify as Muslim in in, in faith terms or, or certainly from a cultural background perspective. Uh, and in, in this particular chapter, the one you're talking about, chapter six with Nadim muslim and Kamala Shamsi, uh, the thing I would say first of all about that is that the, both writers are very keen to reconnect contemporary instances of Islamophobia or experiences of it in the real world to a longer history. Because the other thing about Islamophobia, I would argue, is that it either ignores history or it uses a very distorted version of, of history. You know, the idea that Islam and the West has always been at loggerheads, at least since the Crusades and probably before, and it's always going to be that way, and the two things can never. Uh, converge and these writers Aslam, uh, Nadim Aslam and and Kamala Shamsi would contest that uh, and would also seek and do seek in the books that I look at to put the uh, situations that they describe in a much longer historical perspective Um, so uh, for example in um, The Wasted Vigil which is the Nadim Aslam book um, there's a very keen sense that we must understand the fate of uh Afghanistan, post-Taliban, if you like, Afghanistan, in that longer history of Western intervention. And so the characters who come into this house that's at the centre of the novel all have a backstory which involves uh the prehistory of Western interventions and engagement with Afghanistan. Uh, And so the instances that you see there of cultural clash if you like are always informed by that. And the book moves backwards and forwards to to kind of show how that how that happens. Um, and, and I think that, that's the kind of crucial thing that both of them uh, have in common um, the ne Aslam one and Kamala Shamsi's one which is um, Burnt Shadows Burnt Shadows is about um, a family uh, really uh, a, a kind of mixed race family a Japanese and um, Pakistani family who then have a German set of relatives as well um, and the, that story takes a long historical sweep from uh, the end of the Second World War and the Hiroshima bombing through to post 9-11 and the family is involved in one way or another in some of the major upheavals so the thing that both those writers have in common I think is a desire to historicize the problem or the the, the difficulty that they have um, I think is that again that they're, they're always in a sense answering to an agenda which has been Set outside, and they're always in a, in that sense. And by by their personality and, and you know orientation, they they come from a sort of secular Muslim perspective. So, to some extent, I think it's fair to say that both those writers' attempts to articulate a uh, let's call it a religious extremist or a, a, an Islamist point of view is the least successful part of their book. Because in a sense, they're still looking at those things from outside. Uh, but on the other hand, as I say, the fact they historicize something that other writers tend to take as a transhistorical given uh, is very important.
1: The, uh, the, the last chapter where you, you analyze uh, books, you focus on uh, Mohsin Hamid's uh, The Reluctant Fundamentalist, which, which maybe lots of listeners know, uh, if not by the book, maybe by the movie. Um, and then Layla uh, Abulala's uh, Minaret, um, another very kind of well-known book uh, in literary circles. So um, these are 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 set in this kind of market uh, market for the Muslim uh, context um, in, in perhaps different ways than than much of the other work you've you've looked at here. Uh, so can you, can you tell us uh, a little bit about these books and then? Um, how, how do you see them illustrating the problems of this this current market?
0: Yeah, um, the thing I'd preface this by saying is is for anybody who has seen the, the film of the Reluctant Fundamentalist, could do read the book, actually, because the film doesn't do anything uh, in uh, like, like the book does in terms of problematizing point of view. Uh, I mean, I like the film. I watched the film myself. It's a good old-fashioned thriller, but the book is not, about that, really. And I think what both of them, in very different ways, um, Abu Leila's book and, and hamid's book, do is they ask questions of us in terms of our position as readers. They ask us to do something uh, a bit unusual, but in very different ways. So, with the reluctant fundamentalist, famously, I guess now, uh, is done as a dramatic monologue from the point of view of one person only in a dialogue. Uh, and that person is Changes who was uh, a functionary of of, uh, the American corporate system. He was involved in a company that uh, values other companies for takeover, but has, through various uh, ins and outs and and after 9-11, gone back to Pakistan and decided, instead of of serving the empire as he sees it, to become an agitator for disengagement with America. And we are led to believe the person who he's uh, interacting with over the table in this nighttime scene in Lahore, which is punctured by these flashbacks to his earlier life, the other person in that uh, one-sided dialogue may or may not be a uh, a CIA agent. Uh, the the, The film actually assumes that it is a CIA agent and just goes for it from there. But the ambiguity in Hamid's text is run all the way through. And what it does is to kind of put the reader in the position of this interlocutor uh, makes the reader think about what their assumptions for the motivations of someone who seems to have ended up as a fundamentalist, but actually hasn't, but anyway, seems to have ended up as a fundamentalist. What's their backstory? What's their motivation? Um, and we're taken on that that journey, but all the way through, and even up to the end, we don't really know what's true or what's not, precisely because it's just done through this one pair of eyes. Um, so what I argue about that book in terms of market, the market for the Muslim is that Mosin Hamid is still having to answer if you like those anthropological questions we started talking about much earlier. But what he's doing by in a sense ad- adopting that position where the you interlocutor is the person on the other side of the table but it's also the reader. What he's doing there is to kind of draw attention to the fact that that is a one-sided interaction, that one can never know the other in a way. So on the one hand, the book, which has been very successful, feeds into the idea that this might be about fundamentalism and why people become fundamentalists. But almost from the first page, it deconstructs that view from the inside. And you end up realising that whatever else he is, this, this central character is not a religious fanatic or anything like that. Um, so it's very, very clever. The Layla Abu Layla uh, novel, Minaret, um, is much more kind of traditional on one level uh, because it, it's telling the story. And it's it's the one book in in Islamophobia in the novel that I look at uh, that attempts to tell the story of uh, a person of faith. Uh, and it's the story of this woman from Sudan um, who then comes to Britain and... She loses her family and her brother goes off the rails and gets imprisoned for drug dealing and so on. She she goes to the absolute bo- bottom, of you know, the, the lowest she can get, and the lowest place she, she feels she can get. And her recovery, as it were, from that position is, is aligned with her rediscovery, if you like, of the Islamic faith. She's been rather dismissive of before and it becomes central to her life and the question that i ask about that is how do we read how do we understand that given the stuff that i outlined in the in the first chapter that we were talking about the liberal chapter given that the idea that the novel as a form is secular and liberal by nature so how do you get a kind of religious consciousness uh, to come across in a in a very kind of materialist and direct form um, and Leila abu Leila in a sense doesn't try to do that she doesn't she just says this is what it's like you know this is the story I have to have to tell so the ambiguity there is around the fact that people will be and are and have looked to Layla Abu Layla for the again quote-unquote authentic Muslim experience Uh, and yet there are all sorts of things about that which ask questions of the novel as a form so although I think she's not as consciously radical as, as, as in Hamid. There is something, that, a, a kind of reflection on the market for the Muslim, the desire for information. You know, we want information about Muslims. Why do they do what they do? Both those writers, I think, are, are kind of challenging and subverting that in, in very different ways.
1: Um, in, the, in the final chapter, you, you offer uh, what you call a critical Muslim literary studies um so what 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 do you mean by this how do we foster such a project and and what what would you say are uh the potential outcomes of
0: of such an endeavor yeah it was a it was an idea really and i think it that that occurred to me as i was writing the book it wasn't planned in a way but it seemed the natural outcome of those readings and those arguments that I've, i've just unpacked um that really what we're talking about here in terms of a problem if you like around muslim representation is not the problem of writing it's the problem of reading uh it's the problem of a reading that assumes that the west and its ways is the kind of normal you know the modern uh by extension that the human There's there's a bit earlier actually in one of the earlier chapters where i talk about you know universalism and uh the way that 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 European or Western Euro- universalism becomes the model for the human so in this last uh, concluding part uh, I talk about the need for us in a sense to deconstruct that um, whether that be as, as readers to be aware of our position that's the kind of critical part of critical Muslim literary studies is to be aware of where you read from and to not assume that this writer has written a book You know, in order to unpack what it's like to be a Muslim just for you You know, you have to think about where you come from. And by extension, uh, the publishing industry, the way that these books are marketed and so on, needs to be a little bit more self-critical and self-aware of the degree to which they perpetuate that relationship that I outlined earlier between uh, the novel and, to use a very big term, the West. You know, that the novel, like democracy, like various other things, is a Western product. Well, one of the things I, I argue in the, the end of the previous chapter is that that's one way of looking, but it ignores the cross, cross-feeding cross currents, if you like, of, of culture and thought and, and social organisation that have happened ever since different societies met each other. Um, so what I'm trying to do really in that chapter is to argue that we need to move away from that degree of, in a sense, parochialism uh, that says the West is this and these writers are, They belong to something that's outside the West, and so therefore they're going to give us some useful information. You know, we need to approach Muslim writers, and we need to open up the frame, if you like, to go back to that idea. We need to open it up and say, you know, let's have a greater diversity of writing that we don't immediately try to pigeonhole as being about misogyny or fundamentalism or whatever it is.
1: Yeah it's a it's a great book Peter I hope I hope listeners will uh, be inspired to go grab a copy and and check it out further. Um, while we have you though we'd love to hear about things that you're you're working on since since the book. What what are what can we expect from you down the road?
0: Um I suppose the the other thing about this book is a kind of culmination of a of a little body of work that I was doing some of it on my own and some with with research partners that uh, included an edited book on Islamophobia and one on on multiculturalism as well, with with different essays in. So, in a way, it, it belonged to that um, that phase of work, which really was was quite long standing. And what I'm doing now, really, is to try to sort of come at this similar question from a slightly different angle, because of course one of the claims that's made uh, for. The novel and literature generally, and I repeat it in Islamophobia in the novel is that you know novels teach us empathy, they teach us how to reach out to others um, who are different from us. They, the claim is, you know, they open our horizons. They may even, if you're Martha Nussbaum, cause you to be proactively uh, engaged with, with social issues. There's the evidence for that is slightly tenuous, but it opens your horizons to other things. Um, well, that's. Uh, okay, that's good, that's important. And I think that's the way we all come to literature. You know, we want to lose ourselves in somebody else's story. Um, but of course, me being me and having the interests I have, I'm interested in the power dynamic behind that. And so what I'm working on at the moment really is a, is a study of the way that empathy in uh, colonial and post-colonial fictions are, uh, or, or rather empathy is, is kind of manipulated. Because the thing is, if you think of any novel, you have the hero, the heroine, or the protagonist, whichever you prefer. You have a bunch of other people. You may well have a villain. So how do literary texts actually – because what, they don't, they don't, what they're not saying is, oh, let's empathize with everybody. Clearly, your empathy is being steered and directed. And so I'm interested at the moment. And what I'm doing is putting together a project, which I hope will become a book. I think there's, there's lots of different pieces, but they, they'll hopefully come together. To think about what is the impact of power dynamics on the way that that certain texts have invited us, because it's an invitation. You know, you're invited to empathize with an other, and sometimes you're, uh, you know, disinvited or discouraged from empathizing. So, how do those um, structural questions, if you like, inform? Uh, the way that we can understand books that deal with with cultural difference. So again, Islam is an important part of that. I, I at this point in time, I envisage a, uh, certainly one chapter on that, but it's part of a longer question. you know, it goes back to that that question again of you know what is the novel uh, how does it deal how does it how does it reflect liberal humanism? Uh, you know, one of the things that that gets said um, a lot is that, The 19th century English novel, for example, thinking of George Eliot here, you know, was really a continuation of that romantic project of opening up one's perspective to other people. Uh, But the irony is, of course, that that's happening at the same time as the British Empire is at its height. So all these things are imbued by power. They're always imbued by ideology. And the empathy debate, such as it is with literature, has not really uh, engaged with that consistently uh, to this point. So that's what I'm hoping to do. Yeah. Good luck. Sounds like a, a big project. Yeah. Well, thanks again for for making the time to talk Peter and uh, congrats for writing a wonderful book. Not at all. And, and thank you for for such a, you know, stimulating conversation.